Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the helipad edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, helipads feature. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I write the Axios Edge newsletter. I am here with Emily Peck of Huffington Post, who writes fabulous things for Oath, and Hello, Emily. Hello. And I'm here with Anna Shemansky, who has dis- who has cast the deciding vote and decided that Amazon is more important than Brexit. I'm only saying this because we just had a Brexit edition. We also are, because it's more important. We are going to talk about Brexit because all hell is breaking loose in Britain right now. It is quite unbelievable. I'm quite happy we just had the Brexit edition so that you guys are all reasonably up to speed on what's going on. So we don't need to give you too much background because, yeah, shit is going down, man, to, to, <laughs> to use the technical term. Um, we are going to talk about Stevie Cohen because we haven't talked about Stevie Cohen for a while. The guy has more billions of dollars than he had before, which is not unusual when it comes to billionaires. But yes... Emily Peck, you are absolutely right. It is all Amazon. They decided not to do an HQ2 in the end after spending about, what was it, like 18 months traveling around the country, talking to cities, where are we going to put our HQ2, getting like seven and eight billion dollar bids from people desperate for this HQ2. They're like, ah, never mind, psych. Yeah, they, they, um, they got 238 cities to bid. Amazon did over the past year or so. And in the end, they decided to split headquarters to between two obvious choices, um, Queens, New York, part of New York City, and Arlington, Virginia. Part near, of Washington, D.C. Part of Washington, D.C. and near Jeff uh, Bezos's home in Washington, D.C. And in New York. One is near Jeff Bezos's home in what, New York. I yes. mean, yeah, exactly. Um, and the helipad title of our podcast today refers to parts of the deal in, in both cities, which require them to build a helipad, essentially, so Jeff can get in and out really quick. This is a big deal in New York City because private helicopter <laughs> trips and helipads have actually been banned since 9-11. He's carved out like an exception to the rule for himself. 
And that's just symbolic of people in here in New York are up in arms because the city, a lot of people are. I Not saw, everyone I is. saw a look on Anna's face, but I, a, a I, lot I, of people are I was are waiting angry. because I, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about this whole Long Island, you know, Amazon to Long Island City thing. Everyone thinks it's dreadful. Everyone's really upset about it. And I was just waiting to come into the studio today because I knew for the, you know, contrarian, actually, this is a great thing, take. We just need to turn to Anna Shemansky. Um, is this actually a great thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing for the cities that lost, and I don't think it's a bad thing for the cities that got it. I, I think it's hard for me to understand why bringing a tremendous number of very high-paying jobs, it's also encouraging we have a company that's going to be encouraging the city to invest in a lot of the things we want them to invest in, including education, including the transit system. I think ultimately this will be a very good thing for the city. And also, I think that for a lot of the cities that were able to bid for this, I know people say like, oh, it was completely useless. I'm like, I don't think it was useless. I think that a lot of these cities were able to get their names in front of Amazon as well as other companies. And it also allowed a lot of them to see like, well, actually, why didn't they get this? Well, because they need to invest in certain areas that they haven't been investing in. So Wait, I think- Hang on a second. Yeah. Okay, this is that you've brought up a whole bunch of points there, which like, let's just take these one at a time. Fair enough. Firstly, the th- main thing that the New York City government has promised to invest in is housing. We have a housing shortage in New York City, and that site was earmarked for thousands of units of housing, which are now going to be a you know, corporate campus. There was apparently a huge fight between Amazon and New York, and Amazon almost walked away over the fact that New York insisted that it not just be a sort of walled-off campus so that people actually do need to be able to walk around it and through it like, you know, they do all of the Google buildings in New York. Google, incidentally, has like 20-odd thousand employees in New York already and has not received any kind of taxpayer sweetness at all. So I agree with you that I am We should add, I don't think we mentioned before you get going yeah. again, that New York City, I believe, is giving Amazon $1.7 billion, yeah, and- close to $2 billion in incentives, tax breaks, so, et cetera, yeah. to come here, which um, I think is why this deal is coming up for so much criticism, because people feel like it was probably inevitable you were going to choose New York City. Why, why are we prostituting ourselves to Amazon for money that could be used to pay for the things that you say maybe we'll get invested in thanks to the large and, and, well, and, and just, just to be- wait and before and before you jump in and I do want to quickly mention this thing where you're like well the cities which lost need to invest in abc no this is nothing to do with investing like it's not like if columbus had invested more in abcd then it would have won this headquarters this is to do with the fact that there's a very very small number of genuine superstar cities in america and the ones that aren't can't get there by, you know, doing some clever municipal finance deal. I actually will very much disagree with that. And we can get to that. But I do want to quickly say that I I agree with you. I am not a fan of the giving tax benefits to companies to come. I, I think that's dumb. There is no evidence to suggest that really tends to generate long term a lot of job growth. So I agree with that. I think that that's dumb. Having said that, I will say at least the money that is being given by the cities is earmarked to meeting certain this Amazon has to meet certain hiring and building benchmarks. So it's not like they're just given a blank check and they can do whatever they want, which is better than some other instances. Now, when it comes to cities, this idea that we have a few cities and everywhere else is just like barren wasteland, I I don't really think that's true. Oh, I'm not saying it's barren wasteland. So I I was just reading a fabulous uh, press release from a company in 
Palo Alto called Upstart, who've decided they're going to hire a whole bunch of engineers and build a kind of weird HQ2 kind of thing. I mean, it's a much, much smaller company than Amazon, but they're building a big operation in Columbus, Ohio. And you're like, great, fantastic. You know, good for Columbus, good for Upstart, like good for everyone. It seems like a great idea to me. And, you know, there was a very credible case made that this Amazon use was really good for Toronto. People were saying that Toronto was like, you know, quite high up the shortlist. They didn't offer any incentives. They didn't offer any incentives. But, you know, but but the point is that now all those people in Toronto who would otherwise have gone to work for Amazon are now going to be more available to work for other smaller companies who will be able to drive the economy of Ontario. And it's going to be great. So I have no, I 100% agree that these small, smaller cities are, you know, exciting and and growing and can offer a huge amount of things to a huge amount of people. I just don't think that they're ever going to be New York they're or not, even San Francisco they're not or LA. Ne- they're not necessarily ever going to be New York, San Francisco or LA, but that doesn't mean that they can't be thriving cities. We're seeing this, you know. You, right, but, 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 but my point I guess is my that- point is that we saw what Amazon did. Ultimately, they decided that they were going to turn down you know, $8 billion from Pittsburgh or whoever it was in order to, you know, get essentially, you know, almost nothing from from Virginia and a billion odd from New York, that they realized that they wanted to be in the middle of everything. And there's no amount of money that can make up for that. Well, I actually think, though, that's also kind of a good thing, because in the past, when we've talked about where companies want to locate, we often talk about, well, they're going to go to the places where you have the cheapest workforce or you have the lowest taxes or, you you know, the most tax benefits. And that actually wasn't the case here. No, but no what Amazon yeah. focused on was the idea of we want a place that has, you know, has invested in transportation and in higher education that has a large pool of talent. That was one of the number one things. And so while so I think it's it's kind of a good message to be sending to a lot of cities that the way if you want to attract businesses, the way to attract businesses is not just by essentially saying you have to pay no taxes. It's by actually investing in these things we want them to invest in. I'm not saying that if you know Pittsburgh invests in certain ways, then just magically they're going to become San Francisco. No one's saying that. But I do think that this is sending a, a good message to a lot of cities about where they actually should be allocating resources. And we are seeing cities like Pittsburgh, like Milwaukee, like a lot of you know college towns throughout the Midwest that have actually really turned around since the Great Recession because they have done a lot of these things to attract not necessarily Amazon, but other you know reasonably big companies to come because of how they've invested in education and focused on a lot of the things that young, educated workers want. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think Pittsburgh was investing in Carnegie Mellon. More to the point, you know, they there's a massive opportunity cost for Pittsburgh. And, and Slate had a big article about this, that the university basically doesn't pay taxes and neither does the big hospital. And, you know, there, there are trade-offs there. But the big question which I have about this is that everyone, I mean, certainly what, the way that you are talking about New York and these you know, high-paying jobs coming to Queens and all of this kind of thing, generally, you know, and, and certainly that's the way that the mayor is talking about it, um, presents this as a good thing. And from the people I'm talking to in, um, you know, in New York, at some point, if you get a whole bunch more like, you know, rich tech bros coming into a city... I mean, it's good financially, probably in aggregate, but it does exacerbate inequality and it does create, you know, problems of gentrification that's so, not un- unalloyed good. So I, I really do kind of push back on this because I think there's this, I find this odd 
movement, where on the one hand, people want everybody to be more well-paid. They want No, they don't want to be... everybody to be more... They want poor people to be more well-paid. Okay, well, there's this idea that we want people to have higher wages. But then when people have jobs that have reasonable wages, they're like, oh, these these overpaid. I'm like, they're not being overpaid. And also, frankly, I mean, $150,000 in New York City is good. It's not like you're, you know, killing it. So my, my, my point is just that we, these are the types of jobs we want to create. These are the type of jobs that are going to that we want to get more people to have the skills to get this type of job. And also the gentrification argument, I really think if you actually look at data on whether gentrification does all of the horrible things it's supposed to, it doesn't. You don't need to look at data. You just need to look at San Francisco. San Francisco has a housing problem because of the like the fact that they won't build anything because you have nimbyism and because you have horrible building codes that don't allow you to. So they look. Yes, we have anecdotal data to, that everybody says, oh, look, this is what happens. But like, actually look at what happen- really happens when you have companies that come in, when you have well-paid people in an area, it helps the city. It is, I'm not saying there won't be some negatives. I, of course, there's nothing's an unalloyed good. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that ultimately, do I think it'll be a, mostly a good? Yeah, I do. Well, I think a few things. First, I think Amazon did everyone a favor by splitting HQ2 into two parts because we or saw three parts because or three Nashville. Parts, yes, yeah. because we've saw in Seattle what Amazon has done to that city, which lots of good things, Anna. Yes, but also like housing crisis. And one of the more disturbing things I was finding when I was doing research was Seattle wanted to pass um, Seattle, which declared a state of emergency with regards to homelessness in 2015, tied to yeah Amazon you know, raising rents and the cost of living in that city. Um, They tried to pass a a new law which would help the homeless. And Amazon disliked it so much it threatened to pull out from part of Seattle. It, it, It held a gun to the city's head and the city acquiesced. And I feel like at least in coming to places like New York and Washington, one hopes that they couldn't pull tricks like that here because we yeah Amazon the city is doesn't not need is not going to be powerful enough in it doesn't have the it's same amount of power in New York town. that it has in Seattle exactly. it doesn't you know have the kind of power in New York that you know Disney does in Anaheim or you know right it's so so we that's have the good. diversity to support them and and we have a media in town that is you know cynical and mean and angry that will hopefully keep them in check a little bit too and like um curb their power so in that way maybe it's it's okay that they came here but like it's worth noting that the new york post you know came out very strongly against this deal on the front page the wall street journal editorial page came out against this deal (laughs) like ross douthit is against this deal it's really interesting um But the other thing I was going to say is like as far as these high paying jobs exacerbating inequality, I really think Felix and has a point. I mean, there's this massive housing project right adjacent to where Amazon is going to locate and the largest in the country, I think. Yeah. And I mean, there was a great piece in The Times that sort of showcased that and they talked to the people there and they're not going to they live right there. They're not going to benefit from this. It's going to be importing talent from elsewhere, from outside the city, from other places in the city. Who are going to be using the local establishments, who are going to be, like, it's not as though people earn money and then they just I mean, I've sock it in, away solely no, in their but, piggy but, bank. This I, is, I, I mean, Anna, Anna, come on, let's let's be honest about this. If you're an Amazon worker in Long Island City, you're, the local establishment you're going to be using is going to be the, you know, hipster coffee shop, which if you work, if you live in in, in the housing estate down the street, you have neither the ability nor the income to actually make use of. Yeah, so, I mean, I just I just moved out of a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Williamsburg, and I sort of lived there for 10 years and watched everything change. And, like, definitely the area was revitalized, and we got 
more stores and, you know, but it was like we lost like the fruit stand and it was replaced by a juice store, which had $10 smoothies. You know what I mean? We lost um, the diner. It was replaced by like six coffee shops where you could get a latte. Like the the people who live in in the housing project maybe aren't going to get the $100,000 jobs and aren't going to benefit from the influx, you know, of really high paying, would feel like say tech bros that come into the area. I think it's it's complicated. Like in a way, gentrification, of course, does benefit a neighborhood, but there are a lot of major downsides. And you think like a city like New York would care enough about those downsides not to give billions of dollars to mega rich corporations. Especially by the when man in the, world. The, the poor people in the neighborhood don't even benefit from increasing property values, that they're hurt by it. Like there are certain types of gentrification in areas which have been where, where you have owner occupied housing, where like at least what happens is that the former inhabitants who wind up getting priced out, you know, manage to cash out to the tune of like a million bucks when they sell their home on the way on their way to Florida or wherever they move to. Like even that's not going to happen in the case of public housing. Right. But number one, I think I would actually just like tell people to actually look at data about whether people are truly priced out in the way that I think people anecdotally often talk about when it comes to gentrification. And also like, look, I'm not saying that there could be no downsides at all. I'm just saying that Ultimately, I think cities do not say static. I think there's sometimes this idea of, you know, well, we can just, you know, maintain this certain kind of cultural idea in a city and that's great and nothing can ever come in and change that. And cities either they grow or they decay. And, and I think that I'm all for having tax dollars used to help people who are in those housing projects. I'm all for that. I'm all for the city or the state pushing Amazon to actually have to perhaps invest in things that don't just benefit their workers, but that could benefit everyone in the area. I'm all for that. I'm just saying that I, I, I find it odd that when we have a company coming in, bringing exactly the type of jobs that we say we want in terms of jobs that have good benefits and good pay, we then push back and say, well, but this isn't going to be good for everyone. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's talk about Brexit, because the 535-page draft agreement between Britain and the EU was finally revealed this week, and oh, boy, did nobody like it. (laughs) I mean, nobody liked it. The guy who negotiated it, Dominic Raab, the Brexit secretary, it was his agreement, and then he woke up in the morning and decided that even he didn't like it and had to resign in protest that is against his own agreement. such a party foul, by the way. That agreement. is not cool. Yeah. You can't do, that is just so wrong. I saw many people in the UK like making fun of this guy. You can't negotiate a thing and be like, you know what, that was bad, and just walk away. Well, it just shows that about it is. No, but I mean, it is just bizarre. But it's like, how do you spend this many months negotiating this all of this time and then not really have a sense of how this is going to play once you release it to the public? 
just terrible. It just shows you the quality of leadership over there is bad. <laughs> I mean, there is no doubt that the quality of leadership in the UK <laughs> so has, has never... Well, I mean, I'm not going to say it's never been lower because it was actually lower when David Cameron was prime minister. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, it it's a disaster. It is a shit show. It is as bad as you can imagine because let's back up a little bit and describe this deal. Basically, it's an ultra, ultra soft Brexit is what it really is. That Britain effectively winds up staying in the customs union, in the free trade area, at least through the end of 2020 and probably even beyond then because they're never going to work out a deal uh, to deal with Ireland. Um, And they still wind up being governed by European laws. Basically, all of the independence that everyone who voted for Brexit was promised doesn't appear. We should explain the the Ireland thing because I don't think we actually talked about it in the Brexit episode, and that seems to be the real sticking point. So the, here. yeah, the sticking. Okay, so yeah, the to make it really simple, um, the entire Ireland peace process is based upon this idea that you can just walk back and forth between the border. It's effectively an invisible border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and. People live on one side and work on the other and, you know, they live on one side and go shopping on the other and they provide goods and services to the other. And it's and that's how the Irish problem was solved, basically, that, you know, that people were like, well, so long as the border doesn't really feel like a border, we're not going to be too, um, you know, terroristic about like trying to reunite the island. Um, and And so this is incredibly important for history and for peace and for prosperity on the island of Ireland. And everyone agrees on both sides of the border that this has to remain a soft, invisible border. You can't just put up, you know, trade barriers. Um, The problem is, of course, that if you have lots of back and forth between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, then that means you have no trade barriers between the UK and the EU because, because the Republic Ireland is in the EU. Mm-hmm. You know, because Ireland is in the EU, Northern Ireland is in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so then what do you do? Then what you have to do is if you have free trade between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, then if you have a trade barrier between Great Britain and the European Union, then you wind up having to put a, a trade barrier in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, this is completely unacceptable to basically um, not only everyone in Northern Ireland, but also virtually everyone in the Tory party and pretty much everyone in the Labour party as well, because they're like, you can't put trade barriers up within your own country. So this is an insoluble problem. And according to the way that this uh, Brexit agreement is drafted, until you solve this un- insoluble problem, um, Britain and the United Kingdom essentially would wind up remaining under EU law and having to effectively be part of the EU. With less and not, say. And not, and not being able to, you know, make their own free trade agreements or anything with zero say because they aren't actually members of the EU. They're just governed by it without being members. It's like the worst of both worlds. Yeah, there's no possible option here that is better than just remaining <laughs> as, you know, a part of the EU. It it. But that said, I mean, I think we can all agree that, like, no Brexit is the best option here. But this agreement, this, like, you know, draft agreement, which everybody hates, is clearly better than the alternative of a hard Brexit and no deal. Oh, 100%. I mean, but I think the problem is that you have such conflicting interests here, both within the Tory party, obviously with Labour, and so... 
I mean, I'm always usually of the belief that these type of political crises all play out in the same way, which is that you push it to the last possible moment and then automatically somebody makes a deal because nobody wants everything like Armageddon. But here I'm actually starting to be like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Anna's coming around <laughs> to this thing. Like, I remember during the Brexit edition, you're like, oh, they'll it's, work it out. And now it's like, no, they're not going to work it out. I'm actually like, I don't know. You know, like it's I, there does seem to be a greater likelihood that you could actually they could just fall out of the EU without a deal, which would just be a bit of a disaster. And I mean, I, I still tend to think the idea that you're going to have some type of like snap election where labor gets in and then all of a sudden there's another referendum. I, I still don't really think that's going to happen. But I am starting to think they may just not have a deal. Right. And, you know, I I do think that if we wind up ultimately with, I mean, so Theresa May t- has been very clear and she w- isn't wrong. Basically, she's like, Britain now has three choices. You can have this deal, you can have no deal, or you can have no Brexit. And all of the Remainers, of course, are saying, well, great, let's have no Brexit. That seems like a great idea to me. Um, and if we're going to wind up with no Brexit, which is obviously the best possible outcome here, um, it seems that this kind of level of chaos and incompetence is more or less the only way we're going to get there. So the probability of no Brexit, um, I would say, while still low, is higher than it was last week because this has just been such a shit show. So in other words, instead of coming on that March deadline and all chaos breaking loose and being a hard Brexit, there'll be some kind of like delay like ahead of March, like give us some more time to negotiate something and they'll just keep keep kicking that can down the road. Give us more time to negotiate. And it seems like even that is going to be hard. So I guess I'm wondering, to me, it seems like they're going to probably fall out. I mean, I mean, I mean, it is possible. I know we talked about this a little bit in the Brexit that it could be the kind of thing where they fall out. It is essentially just disaster. Planes aren't flying. They can't get any food in. And then people have to be like, OK, we have to be adults. And then there's some type of yeah. kind of transition period or something. I, 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 as I've said, I'm still my base case is still at the last minute. They'll figure out something. But I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, fa- yeah, as Faisal was saying in the Brexit edition, there is this kind of idea that if, if everything goes to shit and there's no deal, then within sort of five or six weeks, it's going to be so bad that they'll be able to sort of put everything into reverse. But, like, no one knows how that's even possible. No. Theresa May knows. I feel like... Um, she has I just, no she, idea. No one has any idea. Like, <laughs> Props to Theresa May for sort of, for A, not quitting like that other guy. <laughs> like, at least Theresa May is not a quitter. But can we say that about she, her? She is not. She's a, a horrible she's, politician, but she's not a quitter. I mean, she, she was put in, I think, an untenable position, right? I mean, she's on the proverbial, we call it um, in... Um, the glass cliff. You put a woman or a minority into a position of leadership just when that position is like a shit show and you're like, here, you fix it. Like Look, when Barack Obama easy. was elected president. I'm sorry, but crisis. it's not hard. There's a gazillion ways <gasps> that you can orchestrate a people's vote, some kind of a second referendum. Every single time a country in the EU votes the way that they shouldn't vote. They wind up coming up with a second referendum so that they can change their mind and they wind up changing their mind. This has happened a dozen times in the history of Europe and there's no conceivable reason why Theresa May couldn't have orchestrated some way of doing it in the UK. It's entirely on her that she is insisting on pushing forward with this Brexit means Brexit bullshit when everyone knows that the only way of solving this problem is to have a second referendum and to change your mind. But how do you get there? Politically speaking, isn't her party pro-Brexit? Or am I, are they half and half? Or So I, that I mean, she has a run of like 50 MPs who are super, super hardcore Brexit and who are just insane and will never be satisfied with anything. Um, 
And Parliament as a whole, I mean, God knows, because, you know, it's, it's hard to tell with Jeremy Corbyn le- leading the opposition because Jeremy Corbyn is, is a kind of Brexiteer himself. But I think that there is a way of getting a people's vote through Parliament. And certainly if there's a people's vote, there's a very, very good chance that that the country would vote to, you know, take back seats. I mean, that's what David Cameron thought, right? He said, that, let the people vote. It'll be fine. And it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that didn't work. Well, I mean, like we should. everyone agrees we should never have had this referendum in of the course. first place. Yeah. No, of course. But like you did. Right. And so I think, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, like I agree with you, but doesn't it seem like if you, I mean, I, again, I would 100% support if they just had a people's referendum, they come back and they, or people's vote and say, okay, we're, the, the, sorry, mistake. But if you're like an MP and you're like local area, they all voted for Brexit. And then you're kind of coming and saying like, well, we're just going to pretend that didn't happen. I think that's going to be politically really hard for a lot of MPs, right? Yeah. My, my heart <laughs> I, I mean, it's true that the map is tough, right? Because um, there's a minority of MPs who have constituencies which are like 80, 90, 95% in favor of Remain, you know, in London and places like that. And then there's a majority of MPs who represent constituencies which voted to leave. And so in that sense, if the MPs vote with their constituencies, then the MPs are pro-leave. But the fact is that there are 15 different things that people were voting for when they voted leave. And this agreement that is now facing the country, this draft agreement that is now being presented by Theresa May, is none of those 15 things. Like, no one was voting for mm, this. Right. Well, people were also voting for something that was impossible. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens when you vote for an ideal. That's not practical. <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Anna Shemansky, give us the latest on point seventy-two asset management, or whatever it's called. Well, I think uh, Stevie Cohen's been in the news a little bit, partly because he's been making some statements about whether we're going to be entering a bear market. But then people were commenting on the fact that he was able to raise $5 billion this year. And then I think that was discussed as this idea of kind of surprising to some people with the idea of like, oh, after everything with SAC Capital and the fact that he probably should have gone to jail, that he conceivably was able to raise this money so easily. So let's back up a bit. Stevie Cohen is a hedge fund manager. He's one of those kind of think like billions style hedge fund managers. Quite literally, like, that is who yeah. initially they right. based yeah. on. So like, but, like when people <laughs> think about hedge fund, like. When Americans think about hedge fund managers, um, they often think about people who are, you know, going long, going short, trading the stock market. And that's exactly what Stevie Cohen does. He's not what, like, Brits think of when they think of hedge fund managers, which is generally like George Soros, like, betting on the pounds crashing out of the ERM. You know, this is not, like, big macro bets. This is just trading the stock market. And he's not because – in my initial conception of such a person, I thought more of like a quant type person. Um, but Steve Cohen's really like old school yeah. trader kind give of Give me like, the information. Yeah. Give me yeah. the edge. I mean, and what 
the black edge. And what got him in trouble was essentially trading on inside information, yeah, exactly. which is not novel and has nothing to do and with And so his math. firm was prosecuted. <laughs> he had to pay a massive fine. Um, he was barred from running any outside money. So he was down to his last 14 billion of his own personal Sad. wealth. Poor guy. And, um, and then eventually that ban on running outside money ran out. And he gave this quote to Bloomberg saying, you know, well, we need to grow. Everyone's like, no, you don't. No, well, other- You already have $10 billion. But he decided that he wanted to grow and that he wanted to start running outside money again. So he apparently like makes five phone calls and the next thing you know, people give him $5 billion. Okay, that's I, what he said. Yeah, this is where I, I'm really going to like push back because on the one hand, like if you look back to when they when he first started talking about marketing this fund, they were not talking about $5 billion, They were talking about 10 and above. Like when he was first talking about marketing this fund. And then when they actually went out and were talking to clients, they had to really scale that back. One thing. Also, when he's like, yeah, I took one trip and then we had people writing all these tickets for like billions of dollars. That didn't happen. I'm sorry that didn't happen. A hundred percent that didn't happen. Like I, this personality type I know so well. And you know, the fact that he's saying that to me is evidence that it was actually quite hard probably for them to raise this money. And that and he's defensive about it. So that is why he's trying to pretend that it wasn't as hard as I assume it actually was. So why... Why does he want to be running other people's money again? Because he wants to make a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, you want right? to make money with other people's money. Of course yeah. you do. <laughs> Why sweet, would you rather make... Yeah, yeah. He, he's just well, like, not... he's not rich enough. That's basically the problem. He needs to be rich. Well, it's not just that. It's actually, you know, this is the thing, though. I think sometimes when people think about these guys, it's this idea of like, oh, they just want to be richer. And to me, it's not that. They want to win. Yeah. It's about winning. So right. it's like about getting more points in the game. And so, you know, you use a lot of outside people's money, you can get more points in the game. That's what it's about. It's not because they're like, oh, I want to go buy another, you know, Damien Hurst sculpture. So wait, what does he win? He wins. I mean, he wins feeling like he's the best trader in the house. And that that's it. I mean, like it's you, you see these guys. This is what it is. It's like they compete against everyone for everything. But I mean, sh- OK, so here's my question. It's like if you want to show that you're the best trader in the house, don't you just rack up? the highest returns and doesn't it actually become harder to rack up high returns when you're running more money? If you take way too much money, then yeah. I mean, it is true that if you have way too much money, it is actually hard to find a place for it. And it is actually hard to find good returns. I mean, he's so arrogant. He had very good returns when um, they were doing insider trading at SAC SAC Capital, which was his old firm. The returns were like crazy, 30 percent or something like that. Um, And uh, he doesn't charge two and 20 like all the other hedge funds. He charges 2.75 and 30. So he charges. This is even on the new money. No, this yeah. is on the new money. On the new money. And there's money. a lockup period. I think there's like a three-year lockup period on the yeah, money too. Yeah, I mean, so which is pretty audacious. And then I read in Bloomberg his returns last year were only ten percent, which and he did that with a lot of leverage. He did that with like fees. Yeah. Nine what kind times of idiot leverage, is giving yeah. this guy money? Is what I want to know. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I kind of agree is with you there. I, I do think that like there is still you, you know, you talk to people. Even though, yes, of course, people know that part of the reason he was making those returns is because that he was engaged in insider trading. But there still is a sense a lot of people have that, like, he's a really good trader. I mean, this is something that you hear yeah. from a lot of people who who kind of know. And I think as we're moving into a period where the market is much more volatile, that is a market where his type of strategies, in theory, would work better. But I, I agree with you that I, I am still a little skeptical, as I've said, about how, also how easy it was for him to raise this money, because you're talking about higher fees at a period where clients are pushing back on fees. And also where there has been a lot of, you know, press out there about him having a hard time getting a lot of really talented investors on board. He has a lot of apparently like young guys there who actually like, you know, never really been through a volatile market. So it's I, I do question like I'm curious who the clients are. So who? what's your bet? I mean, who do you think is is the five billion dollars that he got? 
I mean, I'm not going to say any like specific client <laughs> names, but I mean, it is having said that, like, look, you do notoriously have a lot of state pension funds that are all underfunded, so they need yield. So you, there is a possibility you could get some of them who might want to say, like, look, look at the returns this guy had in the past. Maybe he could replicate that in this environment. You know, you, you're. I mean, it's going to be the big institutional investors. It's it, for the most part. I, I would think that most, some of, mostly American. Not necessarily. I mean, you could probably have a lot of other like sovereign wealth funds and stuff. I mean, it's normally going to be sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, endowments. Now, you might get some dumb money. <laughs> but no, I mean, you might get some clients who are going to be a little scary about being, you know, connected with someone who has this kind of dodgy past. But he has done a lot to kind of bring in a huge compliance team and to try to make this kind of big show, saying like, "No, look, it's all going to be clean this time." Which, you know, who knows? Could potentially Which, be true. Um, speaking of the dodgy past, <clears throat> making people want to avoid this man, um, Matt Levine in his newsletter had uh, highlighted this interesting research, which basically said. That when banks get a lot of uh, banks or other investment institutions get a lot of press for being like evil, essentially, and doing doing bad, that that actually makes people want to work with them more because they're like, oh, they're doing the best kind of work. They're so, they're really they're like uh, I think Levine said something like these guys went to jail like <laughs> the traders at SAC, not Cohen, because he was never charged because he's good at getting out of stuff. But that some but of them not recall. No, but like, guilty, but it looks you know? like Tim Leisner at Goldman Sachs is going to wind up going to jail and right. probably Roger Eng as well. And like and so now the question is, I mean, it's an interesting question now that we've seen what's happened to SAC and we've seen this paper. Um, the the new CEO of Goldman, David Solomon, came out with a sort of mea culpa saying, oh, this is very bad and this doesn't meet, this, this isn't what we stand for. Please. And, Everyone's like, like, of course it is. But is it actually <laughs> secretly good for Goldman that they're in so much yes. trouble over one MDB? No, I, I don't think so. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I will also say, like, I was no. looking at that paper and like, it was like, if it, their their way of saying whether a company was like had a bad reputation was like if articles used the words dubious and gamble and fierce. I mean, it was like the most unscientific way of determining. And I'm like, yes. I, I, I use the word dubious, man, and, and that's scientific. When I use the word dubious, that that's highly scientific. Like, yes, if you have a firm that is probably the most well connected and the most profitable, guess what? They're probably going to be in the news the most, and it's probably not always going to be for good things. So I don't know. That's the whole study, fair. I was very dubious about. But um, I will say, I do think there's a difference between ruthless and corrupt. Like, I can see potentially being like, I want the shark on my side. Like, that I could kind of see. There could be a little bit of that. But I think there's a difference in that and, like, outright being criminal. And I'm sorry, there are also firms that have really good reputations, and it helps them. It definitely helps them with clients. On Wall Street? Yeah. Come on, give me an example. I I can't. She can't. <laughs> you can. No. Okay, well, you I can, can tell you. No, okay, actually, okay, I will tell you. The firm I used to work at. Uh, no, I know this is going to be. No, they actually like. I'm not just saying this because I used to work there. Like, they legitimately have a really good reputation, and it really helps with clients. Like, the, I, I, it does, and so that's why I, I'm a little like I question when people say like, oh, you know, if you have this horrible reputation for essentially being criminal, that's going to help you. And I'm like, have you been in client meetings? That's not the sense I get. I think. You know, if you talk to clients of like Elliot, say, which has, you know, which has definitely got a reputation for being ruthless, you know, that's why they invest with them. But that's ruthless. That's not corrupt. That's different. Like, hey, you know, like it's a very murky edge between ruthless and corrupt. Right. True. Um, SAC. I don't. Was it ruthless? I don't know if that's oh, right. I mean, they were just definitely like, corrupt. Well, no, I mean, like they like legitimately were, you know, using those expert networks where you had Matthew Martoma, who was like the big guy at the center of it, who was essentially like 
butting up to these like professors to so try to get sad. information. It was so sad. If you actually read the book about it, it's really sad. Um, no, I mean, they, what they were doing was just like out and out illegal. Um, well, that was my other question that I wanted to ask Anna and Felix, because um, I don't think I've had this discussion with y'all since I've been on the podcast. But what SAC did, insider trading, essentially, a lot of people think it's it's no big deal. There's it, no one it is a, It is a victimless crime. Is it? Are you sure? I'm. I'm. I, it is very, very hard to point to anyone who was harmed by, you know, SAC Capital having advanced information about drug trials. Now, is it the illegal? Yes. That... Should he go to jail for it? Yes. But it's it's hard to point to a victim. What about the man that Matthew Martoma, the research scientist that was studying yeah, the Alzheimer's that, drug, who got totally worked over by Martoma, thought he was his BFF and like is just this elderly man who, I mean, his career has basically been destroyed. Right. He thought, well, he was he also engaged in criminal activity. Like you can feel sorry for him, but he is a criminal. The point is that like if, you're, if, you're, if, you're painting, no if you're painting him as the victim, then, you know, the, the criminal and the victim are the same person. So I actually have a little bit of a different take on this and i'm not gonna lie part of this has to do with having like (laughs) had to go go through so many like ethics training things and having to like you know do the ethics on the cfa that like i i will say i do think that there is something to having capital markets that people have some sense that there's are some rules that people are following and i know you're gonna say that i'm horribly naive no no that's true i i I totally agree that there are good reasons to have criminal statutes of around insider trading. I am not saying it should be legalized. I I think that if you do it, then you should be prosecuted criminally. I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I'm just saying there's no victim. Do you think also in the kind of um, like the kind of short term trading that Cohen is sort of known for, like dipping in and out, doing not investing for the long term, that has detrimental effects on the market and on no. business? That no. that's he's a he's a liquidity provider. Yeah, no. You know, liquidity he provider. does price discovery. price discovery. It's like I mean, it's the whole it goes up to the whole question of like why do we have public markets at all? Mm-hmm. You know, the reason, you know, there is at some level a benefit to having public markets rather than just <laughs> For anyone know, who has markets. investments, okay. there's some benefit. Like <laughs> well, okay, so it's not the uh, cuz a lot of people complain about like short-termism now. No, that's nonsense. Com- it's, it's, it's okay. We're going to have a segment Ouch. about. Sorry, I, I didn't think that's you. <laughs> no, I mean we're going to have a segment about this because it's it's super. It, you know, it, as Emily says, it's super trendy. Everyone from Larry Fink to Jamie Dimon are going on about the evils of short termism. We will explain mm-hmm. whether they are right or wrong in a future segment about the evils of short termism. <laughs> short termism. You know where I stand. Okay. <laughs> um, but for the time being, I think we should. Have a numbers round, and we'll make it a short term, short term numbers round. Only short term like, numbers. Well, we'll make it a lightning round where you need to you need to come out with your number within a round trip amount of time of less than like one second. Do a quick trade. Quick <laughs> you trade. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't do that. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. I own probably rule. could. <laughs> my number, you know, for shits and giggles, is one point five five percent um which is the coupon on the new euro bond from kazakhstan, kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i thought 
was going. Wow. This is yeah. This is the <laughs> and this is trading above par already. So this that is, is this is the yield you can buy Kaz- <laughs> a five year Kazakhstan bond denominated in euros um, and get one and a half percent interest on it. That's amazing. Okay. That's so amazing. yeah, I don't think I'll do that. Don't do that. That's a horrible idea. That. Yeah, Wait, th- listeners, uh, don't do that. Don't, listeners, like, yeah, we are giving you investment advice. Don't go, <laughs> don't go out and buy the Kazakhstan Aww. Euro bond. Like, no good can come of this. Was it oversubscribed? It was. It does not surprise me. Um, my number is $19.82. That is the price of the new mon- Millennial Monopoly game. What? So, <laughs> Millennial Monopoly? Yeah, so... I can't even pronounce it. I know. Too many M's. So... Monopoly came out with this new version that is for millennials where you can't buy any real estate in the game because they say you can't afford it. And it's all about gaining experiences. And they have things like, you know, you, you, you know, if you earn something, you get to go to like the vegan restaurant. It's like every stereotype you can possibly think of. But I feel like at first when I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is kind of horrible. But then the more I was looking at it, I was like, this is so horrible. It's kind of awesome because it's just like every single stereotype put in one game. And you can tell and even like the response from from Monopoly, like they're clearly just they knew this was going to be the exact response, they're so they're just playing off it. I think it's kind of amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I can't beat that. My number is six. That's the number of basketball games at a minimum that um, Dwayne Wade, who plays for the Miami Heat, is going to miss because he's taking paternity leave, which is notable because usually professional sports players do not take paternity leave at all, and even if they take a little bit of time off. They are just excoriated for it as like weaklings and letting everyone down. So it's kind of, I think, interesting that uh, Wade isn't getting really any pushback and he's getting celebrated how, how, for this. How like, much time is that? Six games. It's a couple of weeks, I think. It's a couple of weeks. Yeah. T- I feel yeah, like basketball games you can is, play more than Yeah. Once. I mean, it's not a lot of time it's in the grand time. scheme of things and paternity leave time like if it was like i want you know six months of paternity leave they might yeah be less right um to yes go along but with that. that it, really that he's taking any at all and like talking about it publicly is kind of a big is actually kind of a big step and we want we want more men to take paternity leave because it sort of evens the playing field for women too um okay i think that's it for us this week thank you for listening to slate money um i think next week we're gonna have the most amazing show um, if all goes according to plan, and I hope it does, Anna and I are going to geek out at a level that is impressive even by Slate Money standards with the doyen of sovereign debt restructuring, Mr. Libukite himself, is going to venture across the East River and going to come into the studio and we're going to talk about every kind of crazy thing along with Mitu Gulati we're going to talk about Puerto Rico Argentina um I don't know maybe Dominica Peru Ecuador um Ukraine Green. Pakistan yeah. I don't know what we're going to talk about we have so much to talk about it's uh, Greece yes. of course we have to talk about Greece that was his like you know brainchild all of these amazing places who borrowed a whole bunch of money defaulted couldn't pay it back and then what happens um, there's one person on planet Earth who understands the answer to that question better than anyone else, and he is coming into the studio. So tune in for that. Um, and we're going to have a Slate Plus segment on wildfires in California. Otherwise, um, if you're not a Slate Plus member, well, become a Slate Plus member. But if you don't, thanks for listening, and thanks to Max Jacobs, and keep the emails coming. The email address is slate money at slate.com. 
And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. <laughs>